Welcome to Laughing Your Mask Off, the podcast where we talk to comedians about navigating the world of comedy since the pandemic. I'm Katherine Gowan. And I'm Carly Palestina. <laughs> and today we are talking to the very funny experiment, Laura Hi! Yay! Yay! <laughs> Welcome! Hello, Laura. Thank you for being here. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, hooray. We're so happy to have you. Um, okay, so to get started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from and how'd you get started in comedy? Tell us about Absolutely. you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm a stand-up comic and I'm originally from uh, Westchester, Westchester, New York, uh, specifically Rye. And I was always, um, ever since like I was four, I always had this immense desire to make people laugh, even at the um, even at the cost of my own safety, um, I literally would run into walls to make somebody laugh. And <laughs> I loved theater. I was heavily, heavily involved in theater, music theater. I'm there was like a, a a like a ten year period where I think I saw every single show on Broadway. Um, I music theater obsessed, and so I got a degree in theater and specialized in comedic acting. Moved to New York City. And I was in a play and an audience member was like, are you a stand-up comic? I'm like, nope. I loved stand-up comedy, loved it. But I was always like, oh, wow, that's like that thing that other people can do. And I, and they're like, but you, you just, you read lines like a comic. And I was like, that's interesting. And so I thought, you know what, why don't I take a class in stand-up comedy and it will help me be a better comedic actor. Like it'll help me understand joke form better and it'll just be fun. And I took the comedy class at Caroline's on Broadway with Linda Smith and she still teaches there. I highly recommend everyone goes. And I fell in love with it. And I was like, and I remember, cause for our graduation, we had to do a show at Caroline's and I literally walked on the stage. I grabbed the mic and I was like, I'm home. It was the most incredible sensation. I will never forget it, but it literally was just like, oh shit. Oh no, this is it. Oh crap. (laughs) I've never gotten off the stage since. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my start. That's where I'm from. And now I live in New York city and, um, Manhattan specifically. That's awesome. And then, so when you like, when you were starting in New York as an actor, did you like keep going with acting as well? Or were you like done acting now? I'm just a like stand up. Like how was that sort of transition or are you no, still I'm acting? St- I'm still acting. Um, I'm That's still, awesome. I just did um, some VO. I just did some voiceover work actually. Um, I am a SAG-AFTRA actor, which means I'm part of the SAG-AFTRA union. Uh, I, you know, I have a manager who sends me out on auditions. I just got new headshots actually done. Um, but I did transition over to film, TV and commercial um, rather than stick just to theater because I, I realized it was more of a, a better tactic for me to switch over to film, TV and commercial. Uh, I still love theater. It is like my heart is still made of like tie line, tie line and flats. Like it is still where I, I that's where my heart is. Um, and I want very much to be able to get back into theater um, at some point. Um, but in terms of me having a successful career as a performer, I knew that that was the path I needed to do. Yeah. And I love it. I love, I adore, I didn't realize how much I would adore film acting as much as I do. Being on a set is one of my favorite things. I love being on set. That's amazing. Um, so if with like the theater and film and stand up mm-hmm. and everything, uh, what was that like in your life before the pandemic hit? 
Um, it was interesting. <laughs> so I, a lot of stuff happened. I mean, I was before the pandemic, um, I was doing really well with standup. I felt like finally, like standup was really starting to take off. I had headlined for the first time at Caroline's. Um, I was starting to get booked way more. I literally just finished hosting. I, the, the day, the week before quarantine, or it was like two weeks before quarantine hit, I was hosting at Bananas in New Jersey. Um, I was having a great time. Um, and also there was something, um, I was, I had literally, I just finished a pilot and that was getting ready to get that I was created that I produced and I filmed and literally the week of quarantine, it was ready to be pitched. So like, for me, I was like really good. Like I was like, this is fucking my year. I'm going to nail it. This is awesome. I'm fucking killing it. I'm ready. And then pandemic and everything just went yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely rough. And so then if you have all this momentum going like film and stuff, could that keep going? Cause like, we know like, you know, we're comedians, like we are well aware of kind of like the standup, how like that transition went, but like with more like the film and TV, like that side, is that, was that able to continue at all? Or was that like, what did that look like when it started to shut down? It stopped for a while. It stopped for, for a bit. Um, cause I think there was just, they, they just didn't know what to do. They were like, what the what what are we gonna do um it took a while because both my fiance and i are, are both film tv um commercial he does so much commercial commercial work and it took a while for things to like start auditioning again um and for us to being start to start being called in again and what would also happen is if you were not represented you were not being uh, you were not going to audition they were it was who they were calling and was very very specific um and agents and managers were not were not taking on new clients at all because they were just like we have to protect who we have um which was again so understandable so now at the time my fiance did have a manager um and obviously still does um so he started being able to audition again earlier than i was able to um So for me, it was, we were basically just trying to create stuff. So we were writing sketches, we were filming stuff, we were putting stuff on YouTube because we were like, we have to have a creative outlet somewhere. Um, But it was very, and just to keep the juices going. And what that did was, I mean, any of those sketches kind of just went nowhere, but it really put us more on a disciplined schedule on how to create content fast. And that really helped me out in terms of how to quickly write, how to quickly produce, how to quickly edit. It, that did help me out a lot. Awesome. And then, so during the pandemic also, you have had like, congratulations, massive success on TikTok. Um, that came way later though. I was late to the party. I didn't start on TikTok till January, 2021. Oh, dang. I've been Oh, wow. I've only been on TikTok. I was making fun of TikTok for years. And I'm like, well, fuck me. Jesus Christ, Laura. Um, That was my bad. I was making fun of it. I was like, this is so stupid. Like, I'm like, totally like over this shit. Like, why is anyone even, this is so dumb. And then I was just like, and then I've seen and watched enough comics that I know, like really succeed on it and get really big jobs from it. And was like, well, maybe I should take my foot out of my mouth and <laughs> actually try it out. And I literally, what happened was I was like, okay, we're going to just try this. And I posted 
one one of my stand up clips on TikTok, and instantly my first video within like five hours got five thousand views, and I was like, shit, oh my god! And it was like my second video I did. All right, let's post another clip of stand up. It got like hundred thousand views, and I was like, oh my god! I gained like I had ten thousand followers within like a couple like two weeks, and it was like okay. I'm not playing around anymore. Like, holy shit. And my, I went, I gained. So by the time it hit five months, I had a hundred thousand followers. Wow. Um, and instantly the game changed for me. It was instantly in five months, everything changed. Um, because I, because by the time I went on TikTok. Um, my pilot that I had started pitching had died. They, they were like, we can't do anything because of the pandemic and everything. Like it's just, it's completely shut down. And I was of course devastated by the time that hit. Um, and so then what I started doing was re-recording elements of my pilot, posting that on TikTok, and that skyrocketed my account. And that's what I became known for, which was about donor conception. Um, and it's what I'm still fairly much known for um, is donor conception. And that has given my pilot whole new life. And I've now re-recorded it, refilmed it. And right now we're re-editing the pilot and getting it ready to pitch again. Um, so for me, TikTok was something that I was very late to the game with. And I feel horrible that I ever, ever sullied and made fun of it ever. Cause it's been the biggest gift to me because it literally relaunched my standup career. Um, I, I now like January, I was touring the entire month and I know that the reason that I've gotten a manager now I've been getting booked left and right with stand up is because of the, the, the audience that has been gracious enough to view my, my, my dumb ass shit. Um, (laughs) Exceptionally, exceptionally grateful for the opportunity I've gotten from TikTok and, um, I will never say that. Well, no, I probably will continue making fun of it, but um, <laughs> I, I will be making fun of it. But I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity I've gotten on TikTok. That's so cool. Yeah, that's amazing. It's also when you started doing TikTok, were you like consciously trying to be like these sorts of videos do well? So I'm going to try and like, like how aware were you of like trying to make videos that would like gain attention? And like, you know, because I feel like I, I also am like, I don't really use TikTok at all. And I'm like, thinking about getting into it for like all the reasons you mentioned and because I have yeah. so many friends who have like similar have said similar things but I'm like I don't even know how to make a TikTok like I literally don't even know how um well, so like how did you yeah how did you like start and like figure out how to get moving with it I mean so I've been making online content before TikTok was a thing yeah I've been making online content since Say this i've been attempting to make online content since probably 2014 2013 yeah um so i've been attempting to do it since then so tiktok is the first time any single video i've ever made went viral ever i've never had anything go viral ever in the history of viralness ever 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 I had one meme on Reddit that did decently well, and that was it. Uh, but I've never had a sketch. I've never had a joke. I've never had anything go viral before. And um, that was, and so 
I have now years of failing between um, learning how to edit, film, act, what people want in terms of their online content, how to sell it, the caption, like everything. So by the time I started doing TikTok, there was already there was already sort of this repertoire of stuff I knew how to do. So to me, transitioning to TikTok was like, I got it. Okay, I understand. Uh, and I still like fully don't get it. I mean, you know, I, I don't have a million followers. I have like, I'm closing in on 350,000, which is still like, that's really great. That's awesome. But I'm still learning how to do TikTok because TikTok is specific and it's different. You know, it's different um, um, from YouTube or anything else. Um, and so I'm still, you know, there's still always a learning curve that you have to do. And the algorithm is, you know, the almighty algorithm trying to figure out that freaking thing is always yeah. a bit of a disaster. But um, yeah, it's, it was, it, it certainly was, it just instantly was this, okay, I have to grab people's attention in two seconds. How do I make them laugh instantly? How do I keep them going? And how do I convert the likes into follows? And it was just this instant kind of like, okay, no, 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 I, I sort of, I get, I get the idea and the concept on how to do this and I have to brand myself. So the stand-up videos are doing really well. Great. Okay. So let's continue making stand-up. People want to know stand-up. All right. Let's try donor conception. Oh shit. People are really liking the donor conception. Perfect. That's what I want. So let's keep doing the donor conception because that's what I want my pilot to be. So the fact that everybody else is liking that is great. So I'm going to keep moving forward with that. Oh, people are liking the content that about my divorce. Okay. I'll leak into some, some, some of the stuff that's about divorce. Okay, cool. Um, Ooh, I tried that sketch that went nowhere. I'm never going to do that ever fucking again. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, um, okay. That sketch was three minutes. No one watched it. Okay. Keep it under a minute. Keep it under a minute. Okay, cool. So the answer, that was a very, very long winded answer of saying, yes, I absolutely listen to my audience and figure out what they want. Um, because it is a relationship and I want to create content that I'm proud of that I love, but I also want to make sure that I'm making content that the people who are giving me their time also like. Yeah, that's a very good mindset on like capitalizing <laughs> on how to capitalize on your audience. Um, also, you've just mentioned uh, donor conception and that being your pilot and can you just talk yes. a little bit about uh, that in your life and your comedy? Sure. Um, so I'm a sperm donor baby and I was created. So I was, um, no, no one tell anybody that I'm 33 years old. So, sh but um, <laughs> I was conceived, made um, in 87 and I was born in 88. And I was made during a decade where like sperm donors were like popping off. Like it was, it was the rage and there was a lot. Um, and it's really where, I mean, donor conception was already problematic in the seventies, but it became really problematic in the eighties because of how popular it suddenly became. And so I was made in a decade where it was so much the wild west. I mean, it still kind of is, I mean, there really isn't any better regulations now, but it's, it's not as bad as it was in the eighties. It's still really, really awful. And like, that's always the thing that I always try and tell people like donor conception, the infertility industry is one of the most unregulated branches of medicine. Um, just in the eighties, it was like really bad. Um, it was, it was, it was pretty awful. Um, and I always found me being a sperm donor baby was just funny 
there's a lot. I always found it just to be very funny. The idea of being a sperm donor baby, the idea of sperm donation to me is just funny because I'm a comic. So everything I view is through this lens of comedy. And the fact that I'm a sperm donor baby is just a very funny phrase. And um, the more I started to learn about how I came to be, the more I, I was like, this is hysterical. I mean, it's terrifying and it's so unethical, but it's funny because again, <laughs> everything I view is through the funny lens. And I'm just like, ha ha ha. My life was at risk. Ha ha ha. Isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> that's how I just I view everything um and but what ended up happening was the more I started learning about it the more I was like oh shit no the infertility industry is like insanely unethical and I started learning about how like children have died uh how children have gotten insanely sick how uh, how women have been sexually assaulted and I was just like oh uh this is less funny. Even I can't really see this as funny anymore. I'm shit. Okay. This is problematic. And so I started talking about it and I was always so influenced by shows like the daily show last week tonight, like all of these, like uh, how Jon Stewart was able to, you know, talk about these incredibly unethical behaviors, how he was able to talk about all these dark subjects, but wrap it in a punchline was to me always just pure magic. And that always influenced me so much. And I was like, well, what if I did that? What if I was able to talk about these really dark subject matters, but I wrapped it in a joke so that it was easier for people to swallow. And maybe then they'll kind of like hear my story a little bit better. And I started doing that and people started listening. And I was very much like, oh shit, okay, this is fun. Um, And I kept talking about it and more, and I kept finding more and more donor conceived people and more donor conceived people are like, this is the first time I've ever felt represented. It's the first time I've ever felt heard. I'm laughing and crying. And I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. I didn't expect this level of like, I didn't expect the reactions. Like I just, I don't know what I thought I was going to get. I don't know what I thought. I, I just didn't expect I would find this many people with similar stories to me. I didn't expect I would find this much of a community. I didn't expect my material to touch as many people as it did. Um, For me, I have an anxiety disorder and I just needed to talk about this stuff because that's how I deal with my anxiety is I just write jokes about things. Um, And it was just something that was on my mind and I, I had to talk about it. And then suddenly people were listening. Um, and it was like, all right, I'm going to go with what works. I'm going to, apparently this is, this is hitting people. Maybe this is something that I should do that I need to do. Maybe this is something that I is the right thing to do. And I kept again, thinking about like John Stewart, John Oliver, uh, Stephen Colbert, Samantha B going like, maybe I can use my comedy to actually help people out. That's what it seems to be doing. And that's what I've always wanted to do. So maybe this is it. Maybe this is the thing that I do. And it's given me such fulfillment, satisfaction. I don't know what the right word is that um, that I'm able to shine a light in this dark space um, and help my community out. And I didn't even know I had a community up until like four or five years ago. Um and I ended up writing a pilot about it. Um, I ended up writing a pilot. It's like a docu-series 
Uh, it's a funny docu-series and it's basically a takedown of the infertility industry. And it's um, me searching for all of my siblings because I supposedly have 50 siblings out there or that's over 50. So many. Oh my God. <laughs> 50? Well, about that's what they guess because um the so I have found three donor conceived siblings so far I was I was born in 88 and so far my oldest sibling I found was born in 83 and we have two siblings in between us so the donor sibling registry was like given the fact that you all were made in the 80s given the fact that there was a six-year difference and given the fact that my donor was donating all throughout med school they were like, you need to be ready. You easily have over 50 siblings. They were like easily over 50 siblings. And so it really became this hunt to find my siblings because I've always wanted brothers and sisters. And the fact that my entire life, I've had so many brothers and sisters out there that I, I, I is to me, like, I have to find them. I have to find them. And I guess I'm going to make myself laugh and other people laugh on the way. And, um, and TikTok was such a good way to reach out to people saying, go take a DNA test. Let's see if we're related. That's awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, that's honestly fascinating. 50 siblings is a lot. You could have like a whole party. I could have a whole party. It, um, I mean, it makes, uh, it makes dating fun. Um, <laughs> I, um, before my fiance and I got engaged, he took a DNA test. Cause we just needed to make sure that we were like, we're not related. Cause I was like, look, I'm weird enough. I don't need an incest baby. Thank you. Um, <laughs> like, thank you so much. Wow. That is a whole new level of, that's like a different kind of I concern. Know. That's real. It's also like, I feel like it's not something I would have ever thought of. No, not at all. Like really bringing awareness. Well, and, and that's the thing, like, and that's so understandable that nobody's ever really thought of it. Um, yeah. because the issues and and this is the thing that i've really realized is the issues that are the infertility industry has been like brilliant at spinning a narrative been brilliant at spinning a narrative because um between how it's portrayed in movies and tv shows we have this idea of how donor conception how the infertility works and it's the exact opposite it doesn't work that way at all and they've been able to fly under the radar for years because nobody talks about infertility because it's still unfortunately very stigmatized. It's still something that everybody's very um, ashamed of. And it's still something that everybody is very, unfortunately, if you are going through infertility, you are not typically met with empathy. You are met with shame. And so no one talks about it. And because of that, the infertility industry has just flown in under the radar because no one will talk about it. And, but between like 23andMe and Ancestry, they have taken down the infertility industry. Like that has given us as donor conceived people so much evidence as to going like, we are motherfucking receipts and we will take you down. Um, and we're pissed and we're angry at the fact that um, not only were, I'm like, we were, our lives were, we, we are literally experiments and we were made in some of the most unethical, disgusting ways. And our lives have, have literally been put at risk. So a doctor can buy a beach house in Boca and no one cares. Nobody yeah. cares. That's yeah. Honestly. So I, yeah. So interesting. I like, I have so many questions, but I also don't want to ask everything on the podcast because I want people to go to your content and like yeah. watch it. <laughs> well, no, 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 please, please ask some questions because I believe me there, there's so much about it that, you know, there's, there's 
plenty of stuff. Please go check out my, my TikTok. Please go check out my Instagram. But no, no, no. Please ask questions. Your questions are, I have like so many questions. I have so many questions and I don't <laughs> Can even you know like phrase, spark yeah. note all the, like just spark notes version. What kind of the okay. like, oh, like the, the, I don't know. Yeah. The, yeah. Explain. <laughs> so the be best way I can explain it is, um, so the United States is one of the most unregulated countries when it comes to infertility in the world. A lot of other countries are much more ahead of us. Um, and when I say it has no regulations, I mean no regulations. I mean zero. The only um, regulation the FDA, FDA requires of all donors is an STD test. That's it. Wow. There is no requirement for genetic testing. There is no, they don't even have to verify the medical information a donor provides. There's no background checks. There's nothing. Oh, wow. Right now on the floor, there is the Donor Conceived Persons Protection Act, which is the which is an act that's being proposed that would require the clinics to verify medical information. Because what ends up happening is donors come in and they lie because they want their money. And or what ends up happening most of the time is that clinics will get that information, throw it in the trash and write their own medical history for the donors. Really? There, there's a donor conceived person I know who found their donor, had the information that their parents received about the donor, showed that to the donor, and the donor looked at it and was like, I didn't write any of this. They were oh like, I God. didn't write any of this. Yeah. That's crazy. So yeah. what would the, what does the act that's on the, like that's going on, like what would it, what's like it proposing? What it would do is basically it would require, um, you basically had to bring in your medical information of the past five years. Okay. And it would have to be, it's the same way how referrals would work. The clinics would have to call the referrals and basically double check saying, so this is their medical history. This is what's going on. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. That's it. It's like nothing crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that there is, you need a background check for an entry level job. When I was a nanny, I had background checks. Yeah, I worked, at the, the, I worked at the YMCA. And they yeah. background checked me. <laughs> like, like there nothing is <laughs> no, you need a background check for a basic of job. And this job entails you creating half a human. Yeah. There should be a fucking background check. Definitely. Um there's also my favorite non-regulation is there is in the United States, there's no cap on how many babies can be produced by one donor. There's no cap. That's crazy. That's there crazy. could be like hundreds. That's insane. There are. That's why that's crazy. That's mind blowing. Do other countries have? Camps? Yeah, like what's the what are yeah. like what are some countries that do like countries that do it well? What are they doing like specifically? That's better. So God bless the UK. The UK they don't have a limit on the number of babies, but they have the limit on the number of families. So a donor in the UK is only allowed to donate for ten families. So basically, that would mean that that family can ensure that all of their children will have full siblings. Hmm. Oh, that, that, so makes, that makes sense. It yeah. makes a lot of sense. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. It makes sense. So 10 families, um, all donors and recipient parents in the UK have to go through mandatory counseling so that they can understand the implications of what's happening. Hmm. Again, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then the, then the UK and several other countries have banned anonymity. 
Um, so there is no more anonymous donors in the UK, Australia, Sweden, Norway, Netherlands, Germany, and New Zealand. Um, because what they have found is anonymity. And I know that we all think of anonymous donors as like the total norm. And like, you know, it's that, you know, anonymity, that's what protects, you know, the recipient parents, the donors, it's all bullshit. Anonymity, the only thing that that protects is the infertility industry. The, um, Anonymity basically acts as a giant curtain between us and the infertility industry, and it allows the infertility industry to get away with horrible, horrible shit. Um, it does. It is. It negatively affects recipient parents. It affect, negatively affects donors, and the worst of all, the donor conceived children. Um, donor conceived children have died because of the anonymity. Um, the Anonymity has allowed doctors to inseminate patients with their own sperm. Um, that's happened way more than that's we'd like to think. Crazy. Yeah. Um, there was, they banned anonymity in Australia because a donor conceived child died needlessly. If the anonymity didn't exist, that child could have gotten up-to-date medical history and could have gotten the proper screening that she would have needed to get help in time, but she didn't do that. It was too late and she passed away. That's horrible. Yeah, no, it's absolutely horrible and it's needless. Um, So anonymity is something that desperately needs to get banned. But in the United States, unfortunately, we're a little ways from that because again, we don't even have the most basic of laws when it comes to donor reception. Wow, oh my gosh, you're so like, it's so fascinating to talk about because that's that is a massive issue and like no yeah. one I, I don't I, I don't know any of this before this podcast. All. Oh my god. None of it. Yeah. Yeah, legitimately. Yeah, like, crazy. Wait, so then on your in your like pilot that you're writing, is it like a narrative, like a story of a person? You said it's kind of like a docu-series. Is it more like like nonfiction investigative or like I don't know, what's sort of the vibe of it? Cause this is so interesting. Like, yeah. It's basically the daily show meets making a murderer. Okay. Nice. Cool. Cool. That's the best way to say. It's you know I I'm I'm sort of uh, I'm famous. Put that in quotations uh, for running around in a sperm costume in New York City. Um, it's basically me doing that. It's me running around in a sperm costume, um, and asking various questions and interviewing people. Um, I have interviews lined up with like a ton of donor conceived children who have been obviously you know horribly victimized by the infertility industry due to illnesses, due to how many, uh, I mean, there, there are donor conceived siblings who have been matched on Tinder. Um, I have, um, I've talked to a law to the lawyer of a donor who's currently suing his clinic because this donor donated in college and he was a young doctor. He really wanted to help couples out in the clinic, but he was like, I want to be a dad. Can I ensure that none of my specimen is going to be used in my location. Can it all be used in New York City? Because I just don't want my kids to like accidentally hook up with their siblings. And they said, oh, of course, we'll send it all to the East Coast. It will never be used on the West Coast. And he's like, and we'll only make 10. And they're they're like, and it'll only be given to 10 recipients. That's it. Only 10 recipients, no more, no less. And the rest will be just used for research. And he's like, great, that's awesome. Total fucking lies. Uh, He has 19 kids and counting and his natural kids went to school with his donor conceived kids and they had no idea that's crazy but that's why it's like the anonymity is bad for everybody no one does well with the anonymity everyone suffers from it yeah wow 
Yeah, this is like mind. It's very eye opening. Yeah. I would watch this pilot for yeah. sure. Thank you. Thousand <laughs> percent. Yeah. And the whole series. Yeah, all of it. All <laughs> right. So the overlords, the the all the all the people behind the curtains, the the you know the I I don't know if you under, if you watched X Files, but like the Smoking Man. When, however, you guys are hearing that, people want to see it. Let's get this produced. Heck yeah. sure. I honestly. Yeah. I think the, I would definitely watch it. I would it. fully watch it. I, I know a lot of people who would definitely watch I mean, yep. so people love like investigative stuff too. And they're like, I don't know. Well, and it's something about. where I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe if people knew about this, change would happen. I yeah. think it's just something where people are so in the dark, they had no idea. They wouldn't even think this is an issue because it's it doesn't make any sense. It's not, yeah. and this is something that's also, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Pe I've talked to everybody of, you know, every kind of like political affiliation and they're like, yeah, that's really fucked up. This is yeah. something that's so easy to fix. This is something that almost everybody can agree on that this needs to be better regulated. It needs to be better regulated. And, um, and it's why for me, it's like, th this is the, we can do this out of all the problems in the world. This is an easy one to fix. Guys. We can do it. <laughs> we can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can do this. <laughs> Yes, we can. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're winding. <laughs> we're winding down. I want to keep talking for longer, but we're like really winding down on time. So, uh, quickly, uh, if you had advice, what is the best advice you've ever received, or what's advice you would give to other people pursuing stand-up, or quite frankly, in the direction this has gone, like anything you want, whatever. Sure. Um, I think my advice for anybody who wants to do stand-up, I, I would say um, you need to treat this like a job. There's a lot of people who come into stand-up and they're like, you know, fuck the man, I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to snort cocaine on in the bathroom, which is like legit, I get it. Um, and I understand, but you have to treat it like a job. You have to treat it like a job. This is not just the way to become successful at it is you have to be at it every single day. This is tough and it's hard and you need to, and, and again, it depends on like what you want to do. Like if this is something you want your career to be, you want to be making money at this. You want to be working on the road. You want to have your Comedy Central Netflix specials. You have to be working at it every single day. Um, now, if you just want this to be something that fun that you do every once in a while, then, that, you know, do whatever the fuck you want. Go, go snort that cocaine in the bathroom. Have a great time. <laughs> um, Rocket, don't do, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Um, but <laughs> it's a job. And... I, what I would also, you have to love it. I mean, and that's the thing. If you don't love it, don't do it. And that should be the, the case for any single job. Um, and what I would really implore, especially in this day and age, as we're sort of like redefining what is and what isn't appropriate, I would really try and think, I would really, really want you to think as to what kind of comedian do you want to be? what kind of comedian, what do you want your message to be? Who do you want your audience to be? Um, how do you want to be known for? How do people want it? Like when they look you up again in the few, you know, years from now, how do you want to be defined? Um, when we think of 
like our comedian rock stars, when we think of somebody like George Carlin, when we think of Robin Williams, or we think of Wanda Sykes, we, what are they known for? What do you think when you think of them? Um, and I would say be cognizant when you are writing your jokes. I think you should write write, especially when you're starting out, you should be able to, you need to write whatever it is. You need to write, write it out, learn, because you just got to focus on joke form. You got to just figure out joke writing, but there does need to be a responsibility for the jokes that you tell. There has to be. You can't, there is no job that doesn't have some form of a responsibility. And I think the idea that comedians are like, it's just a joke. La 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 la. I have no form of responsibility. It's like, no, 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 no. That's never how comedy has worked. Comedy and art has literally shaped society. And if you don't want to be a comedian who pays attention to that, if you want to be a comedian who just literally is like, fuck society, I'm going to do what I want, then that's your prerogative. Are you okay with that? Are you genuinely okay with that? Or do you want to be a comic who trying to figure out the best way to explain it. It's just, I would really just say, don't be scared of the responsibility. Yeah. I would say, don't be scared of it. It actually, it's, it's a good thing. These are your, it's, it's, it's not just your jokes. It's your name. How do you want your name to be defined? Um, Also, don't be a dick to the wait staff at comedy clubs because uh, you never know when those stir- it's don't be a dick to the wait staff. Um, that would be my other biggest piece of um, because I've seen this happen so many times is like the servers are, you know, they're working their ass off. They're working their asses off. They're amazing. They're incredible. And then you see these comedians just being a dick to them. And then that server ends up becoming the booker at that club. So don't be a dick to wait staff. I think that's fair. Yeah, it makes yeah don't be a dick to anyone yeah (laughs) don't be a dick to anybody but definitely it's I um but I I really would love the the old adage of like it's just a joke I really would like to see that die and I would really love to see comedians own a bit more responsibility for their jokes um because it's never been just a joke that's never existed and I think that it would be like and look if if you want to be a comedian who is like fuck the rules I'm going to do what I want then I would say just, I would really like take more responsibility for your jokes. Yeah. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Right on. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So as we, as we finish off, is there anything um, you'd like to promote? We've loved talking to you. People who are listening, I'm sure love hearing from you. Where can we see more of you? Uh, Definitely on the, on, on the talk of the tick at Laura (laughs) high five. Um, uh, If you don't, if you are not a, a member of, of that society and culture, because uh, TikTok culture is a culture. Uh, <laughs> I'm also on Instagram at Laura High Five. I'm also now starting to venture into the Twitter. I am also, um, you can find me on YouTube, um, not next week, but the week afterwards. I am actively going to be way more on YouTube. Uh, but, and if you uh, follow me on Instagram uh, or any of those sites, they'll all link you to my website, which will have my show schedule on it. So come see me at the club. Um, but, uh, yeah. And if you do like the idea of my pilot, 
watch and share all of my stuff because that's the way the pilot's going to get produced. Great. Amazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Laughing Your Mask Off. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a good review. To keep up with our hosts, follow Catherine at Catherine.Cowan and Carly at Carly Palestina on Instagram. See you next week.